Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast, and to our ongoing conversation with UFO author and UK radio host, Neil Nixon. Neil, it's great to have you with us today. It's good to be back, John. I'm getting used to it. I'm really enjoying this. Our topic today, to discuss what we believe to be the top 10 UFO UAP-related incidents in the U.S., U.K., and elsewhere. Those being, in the U.S., Roswell in 1947, the Phoenix Lights in 1997, the Betty and Barney Hill abduction in 1961, the Kecksburg UFO in 1965, and the Shag Harbor incident in Nova Scotia in 1967. We've already discussed West Virginia's Flatwoods and the Washington, D.C. incidents, both of which occurred in 1952 within weeks of each other and were very likely connected. Neil will be talking about the U.K. Rendlesheim incident and the Hesdalen Lights in Norway, both of which occurred in the 1980s, the 1972 Maureen Putty abduction case in Australia, the Detchmont Woods case in 1979 in the U.K., the Tehran incident in 1976, and RAF Bentwaters, U.K., in 1956. Our list is by no means the definitive top ten, as we've already devoted an episode to the U.S. Navy sightings, which are as yet unexplained, and we've covered a few others well. Plus, there have been recent UFO incidents, such as the New Jersey Lights and others in the past 20 years that defy explanation, but aren't included here. With seemingly half the informed world remaining skeptical, and the other half mostly given into the possibility of advanced civilizations visiting our Earth, the headlines are predictable. One might read, Government report finds no evidence UFOs were alien spacecraft. Right behind it, the next report will read, UFO sightings remain mysterious, government report says. Neil is a self-described skeptic who is waiting for conclusive proof. I am of the belief that intelligent life exists out there in space and has visited the Earth in any number of ways for eons, adding that some of what we have witnessed is man-made or natural phenomena, and some is very likely extraterrestrial. Today's conversation will provide you with some interesting food for thought which will help you to form your own opinions either way. Our first topic here is Roswell. I know we've covered Roswell in prior podcasts, but it is the Mac Daddy of all UFO incidents because it involves witnesses, dozens of well-documented books, reports of aliens being discovered, a secret army base in New Mexico, and a government cover-up. My audio track from the early part of this conversation was of poor quality, so I'll summarize my opening and key points. Then let Neil give his opinions on the Roswell incident as we progress through our top ten. I've read a number of source books and studied videos on Roswell, and the book I feel that has been best researched is Witness to Roswell by Carrie and Schmidt, which I highly recommend to you listeners. I also recommend you listen to our interview with Dr. Stanton Friedman in our archives here at 1001 Heroes, and it's titled, Do UFOs Exist? Dr. Friedman, who sadly is no longer with us, was, and no doubt still is, considered the top ufologist in the U.S. For the sake of review, the Roswell incident occurred in July of 1947 when something crashed to Earth in the high desert of New Mexico. A few days later, the U.S. Army Air Force Base at Roswell, New Mexico was alerted, sending investigators to the scene of the crash, and releasing a press report saying that a flying saucer had crashed nearby and had been recovered. Within hours, General Ramey at the 8th Air Force Base in Texas called a press conference and hastily retracted the flying saucer statement, saying that the wreckage was a misidentified weather balloon. 
all the ranchers and citizens in the area surrounding Roswell were told not to say a word to anyone about it. Some witnesses to this day say they were threatened with death. The whole story was bolted down and quieted up. The press lost interest until 1978 when Dr. Stanton Friedman interviewed the intelligence officer from the Roswell 509th Bomb Group. His name, Jesse Marzell, and Major Marzell, who was in the first group sent out to look at the wreckage, said that the crashed object was no crashed weather balloon. He further stated that what he saw was not of this earth. As interest revived, witnesses came forward with stories of two crash sites, alien bodies being taken to the base hospital, a large military cover-up, and various and sundry other circumstantial proof with no hard evidence to show for any of it, other than various government documents that appear to verify the crash and recovery of an alien spaceship and its crew. Hundreds of statements, as well as signed affidavits, have been gathered by researchers who have worked tirelessly over the past four decades to collect information. The skeptics have had a field day during all this time, and Neil will share some of the best-known opinions. And now we resume our talk on the top ten UFO incidents. Yeah, well, I think you've covered it pretty well in terms of the main story that's known, John. Um I might just let our listeners into something, which is that we swapped emails before this podcast to come up with the top 10 that we're going to go through. And I totally agree with you that if you're doing a top 10 of ufology, I can't see another candidate for number one apart from Roswell. It's it's huge. It's by far the best known UFO case in the history of ufology. And it's got so much hanging on it that quite a lot of people are now invested in some element of the truth of it. I'll be careful also, particularly when I'm talking about the UK cases, if I throw names out there or dates or some other thing, then your listeners can Google these at their leisure after we've finished talking about it. With regard to Roswell, as you said yourself, stories have emerged on this. So I'm sceptical for, I think, three reasons. The first reason is that some of the stories are inconsistent and they don't agree with each other. So somebody somewhere along the line isn't telling the truth and it's been reported in various, you know, whichever book you believe as if they are telling the truth. Um, another reason I'm sceptical is because a couple of quite detailed investigative books have been done about it, which knock fairly big holes in the consistent argument. And then I think the third reason I'm sceptical is because Roswell fits a pattern of quite a few UFO cases where an initial story looks really exciting and everybody gets quite worked up about it and then subsequently witnesses come forward and the story becomes complicated to the point where there's contradictions in it. So things I would say about Roswell are that the initial story is quite quite interesting. It's it's quite credible. It, one thing that people who got interested in ufology in the last few decades don't appreciate, and this is really important to the Roswell story, is that it was just missing in action for years in the UFO literature. Um, the events took place in 1947, but realistically, Roswell wasn't a widely known case until 1980. And as I understand it, before Jesse Marcel talked to Stanton Freeman, Friedman, sorry, the people that he was talking to were the National Enquirer. And this is significant because in, 19, in the 1970s, the National Enquirer had a prize that they would give to people, a £100,000 prize, which in 1970, certainly in the mid-1970s, was a considerable sum of money. It was like, you know, winning a lottery or something. And the qualification 
for this was that you had to come up with a UFO story that was that would prove the truth of, of what people believed, which was to do with alien visitations to the Earth. Now, one or two people, famous people in ufology, did attempt to do this, including Travis Walton, who was the guy that was abducted in the movie that's known as Fire in the Sky, which is based on a, on a claimed true story. So Jesse Marcel went to the National Enquirer and obviously well aware of this. And if I'm understanding it correctly, he, I think, didn't Jesse Marcel die of emphysema or something? So he was, he was ill. Yeah. And he was, he'd been a heavy smoker and whatever. But so he had one of those illnesses that was going to be terminal, but he, he would still have had years when from the first diagnosis. You could look at it, and I wasn't there. I'd never met Jesse Marcel. I don't know this, but you could look at it as somebody coming forward for potentially a lot of money at a point when he knew that he hadn't got very long to live. With regard to some of the inconsistencies in the story, if I just chuck some names out there and tell you why a number of people who are central to the Roswell story are also problematical figures, and again, your listeners can look at this. So one person who came forward as a, a witness and, and presented what appeared to be a very credible story was a guy called Glenn Dennis. And Glenn had been a mortician. He'd worked at a funeral home in the area, and his claim was in the 90, early 1990s, he came forward with his claim. His claim was that he'd been asked to take child-sized coffins to the Roswell base, yeah? He'd been dating a nurse, he said, at the Roswell base. He named the nurse as Naomi Self, and the story he told was that he'd gone in the, the ambulance, but basically the vehicle from the funeral home, um, with the coffins and he delivered the coffins and because he was dating this nurse he went to the medical facility on the Roswell base just to say hello to her right um, and when he parked up she came out and found him and got very very upset that he was there and basically told him to get away because he shouldn't be there and he, you know he could put his life in danger and the story he told was that he subsequently met her they went out at night afterwards and she revealed that she'd been assisting at the autopsy of an alien that had died in the in the Roswell crash. Um, now, one of the, it, it, when that story first came out, it was actually really credible because one of the things about it that made it more credible is that he wasn't arguing a very heroic part for himself. He was like, he was basically saying he was a bit part player. He just happened to see something that confirmed the overall story. The problem with it is that when the, the most detailed book was written about Roswell, which was, it's a book by a guy called Carl Flock. Um, and if your listeners are unfamiliar with it, he, Carl Flock's name is P-F-L-O-C-K. So it's Flock like with a silent P, like the German spelling of it. Carl Flock spent more money than anybody investigating Roswell, and it wasn't his money. It was the money of the uh, Fund for UFO Research, which was a, a fund designed to put money into UFO research to get credible research going. And whilst they were officially, like, you know, objective, in reality, they went looking for cases that would prove the more extraterrestrial friendly stories. And Carl Flock's book was the one that demolished Glenn Dennis's story because two things emerged very quickly. First of all, they managed to get the records of all the nurses that had served on the base and Naomi Self was nowhere to be seen, although Glenn Dennis claimed she died in a, a plane crash. But they actually managed to find one of the surviving nurses who didn't remember her and there was no record of her. Secondly, um, one thing that hits the credibility of Glenn Dennis's story is that he had a financial interest in one of the Roswell UFO museums. Um, 
And there are one or two witnesses like him. There's a guy called Frank Kaufman, who apparently was in the front line of the recovery of, of the, the spacecraft. And Frank Kaufman, as a military person, his story is fantastic about the things that he actually did. But um, on the other hand, in the course of Carl Flock's book, Carl um, Frank Kaufman goes through three affidavits which contradict each other, yeah? And if you look at the, I'll, I'll finish ranting in a minute, but things that are problematical for Roswell, which are, have come from these detailed investigations. First of all, Carl Flock's book makes this visually quite clear. On the, in, on the inside covers of the book, there is a map of the area, which includes all the different claimed landing sites. Not only that, but some of the eyewitnesses. It's interesting. The eyewitnesses are often very clear on the amazing things they saw. They do contradict each other. So some of them, for example, didn't see aliens. Some of them did. Some of those who saw aliens didn't see live ones. Some of them did. Um, and this has been explained by the fact that there was a collision. There was a thunder hit a UFO. It lost part of itself over the yeah, over the Brazil Ranch and then crashed somewhere else. But just one thing, a common sense thing that's always troubled me about it is that one thing the witnesses tend not to report is each other. I mean, if you if you just are unfortunate enough to be driving along a highway, as you'd call it in America, um, and you come across a car accident, an auto wreck, people are disorientated. And one of the first things they do is that they go, they find each other and almost like get some support from each other. Now it's interesting, all the Roswell witnesses never describe that. And one of the Roswell witnesses, runs almost over on this, is a guy called Jim Ragsdale, who's quoted in some of the literature. His story is that he was basically out in the desert in the back of a pickup truck making love with his girlfriend when everything happened around him. So he just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Um, so it's all these things that, that, that trouble me. And in the middle of all this investigation, the detailed investigation, there are a couple of quite skeptical books, Carl Flocks, and then there's another book called UFO uh, Crash at Roswell, The Making of a Modern Myth, which do present an alternative timeline story. And we can get into Project Mogul and what it was later. But basically, the fourth flight of a Project Mogul balloon that was launched in early early June 1947 appears to correspond with the debris that hit the ground in Roswell. Um, it certainly corresponds with the eyewitness testimony of the person who often gets left out when people talk about Jesse Marcel, which is Sheridan Cavett. The, the recovery, there were three people on the ground. Mac Brazel, who was the rancher who'd found the debris, Jesse Marcello was the intelligence officer and his colleague Sheridan Cabot, who outlived Jesse Marcel and was available to Carl Flock and the authors of UFO Crash at Roswell, The Making of a Modern Myth. And Sheridan Cabot's story never, never changed. I mean, people have accused him of covering it up and maintaining his <clears throat> allegiance to the military. But the bottom line was his position on this was always that he'd... Um, He'd been involved in recovering man-made balloon debris. It was unusual debris. Project Mogul was a very unusual. That's my take on it. It, it, it. it falls apart the closer you look at it, and it has been looked at in huge detail. It's a massive, spectacular story. Ufology needs it. People need to believe in it. But it's very difficult to prove now, other than it was a weather balloon. I'm going to give you some counterpunches to that, and then we can move on to the next one. But the counterpunches are this. There are just as many or more books out there by serious researchers 
who collected a lot of interviews and spent years doing it, in one case, two decades doing it, and they've got a lot of signed affidavits from people who did not profit from that, from their testimony one bit. Uh, and they've done a lot of research with just as many stories to the contrary, just as many stories as you have stories uh, of people who are absolutely skeptic. Um, there were a lot of strange things that really made this a story, a lot, of, a lot of things that made people wonder. Number one, one of the most consistent types of testimony was that people, uh, soon, as, soon after Mac Brazel made his, uh, went to the sheriff, Sheriff Wilcox, and told him what the story was, there was almost immediately a huge um, effort on behalf of the, gov the local uh, government, the Army, and the local law enforcement to make sure people kept their mouths shut about what they'd seen. It wasn't an effort just to squash the news that it might have been a saucer, but it was an effort to tell people to be quiet. And in some cases, some of the people that the government used to call on ranchers, family, people who might have been connected in any way, government, civilian, didn't matter. Uh, some of the people that they used to shut them up were basically thugs who just scared the living hell out of uh, ranchers and other people. I don't know why would they go to those lengths to cover up a crashed weather balloon. Uh, that's number one, okay? Number two, that the crash occurred in a remote area, a remote area that, they, that our Air Force was using probably for testing because they were at that time, I believe, testing out crafts and technology that they'd recovered from World War II from Nazi Germany new engine designs, new, uh, new, new means of flight. And I think there was a lot of experimentation going on. This whole Roswell thing could have been caused by a secret project that our government was running. And that country out there in the Southwest is extremely remote. If you're going to test new means of flight, that's the area where you're going to do it. Uh, with regard to the weather balloon story, that story changed four times over a period of 25 years. The Air Force kept changing their story as to as to what happened. Uh, they even at one point, I think the last one, when people said that there were alien bodies uh, seen, the Air Force says, no, no, those weren't alien bodies. Those were crash test dummies that came down with that mogul balloon project. Uh, I can't find anywhere where the Army used crash test dummies for the mogul balloon project other than that last official Air Force uh, answer to the people saying, hey, there were, there were bodies found. So that, that, that remains very, very strange to me. Also, one other point I'd like to make. With the story about Mac Brazel, the rancher who first came across all that debris, he was kept on the Army base and interrogated for three days and nights without any legal counsel. It was, it was highly illegal to do that. Then he was brought to the, back to the uh, newspaper, and he was under guard forced to read a manuscript where he said, line by line, I picked up wooden sticks. I picked up aluminum foil. I saw balloon fragments. Now, these ranchers out there had all seen test balloon fragments out there. That was common, cleaning a test balloon that had fallen. Apparently, the Army Air Force had been doing that for a long time out in that area, sending those things up. So it was common for ranchers to find it on the property. What they didn't find was was that stuff being strewn over a quarter mile of ranch land, along with metal pieces that could be very dangerous to their livestock out there. This, which made this a lot different. 
There were also witness testimonies of people who in broad daylight saw an armed, guarded army convoy coming down the main street of Roswell with a long flatbed truck, okay, with a huge, huge tarp covering something dome-shaped on the back of that truck in broad daylight at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. People standing on the street corner, people working in shops, people working on top of buildings, paper boys. They've gone back and gotten a lot of those testimonies, and they all match. So the military was bringing something back other than little pieces of, of aluminum foil and sticks and balloon pieces, which you could basically load in the back of a pickup. So those, just those four things, to me, and there's a lot more, but those four things stand out to me as how do you answer those? So, yeah, your listeners would be well aware that I'm more skeptical than yourself, John. And um, my candidate for the most famous ufologist, with all due respect to Stanton Friedman that you mentioned earlier, uh, is probably J. Allen Hynek. And one thing, one simple but very profound thing he said, which your listeners could learn from if they're unfamiliar with the whole UFO business, is that by and large, ufologists don't investigate UFOs. We investigate reports of it. So you and I are trading report stories. We'll have an interesting little side project later when we talk about Project Hastelon because that's one of the few places where ufologists actually do investigate UFOs. Um, they see them regularly. And so with regard to the uh, Roswell story, the, the most credible, skeptical argument I've had about these things is as follows, really. First of all, no question that something was covered up. I totally agree with you. And Jesse Marcel in the famous photograph with the balloon debris is not holding the stuff they recovered. He's holding a normal weather balloon. So the contradictions in the story about what was recovered, i.e. the Air Force not being able to decide whether it was a weather balloon or whether there were crash test dummies, they're all based on truth. There were dummies recovered in crashes and other bits and pieces in that area. It's just that that story got conflated. That happened much later. Um, it certainly didn't happen in 1947. It happened in the 1950s. When the Clinton administration looked into it, your general accounting office in the United States published a report, and that was the one that really brought to the fore made it the official line that, that it was Project Mogul. And Project Mogul had to be covered up. It's one of the reasons that it's a, a difficult thing to talk about on the Roswell case now is because a lot of people have a misunderstanding of it because it never really came to anything. But Project Mogul was one of a number of initiatives that was going on in the late 1940s when the Americans were trying to discover what the Soviets knew about atomic weapons and building them and, and where, where they were testing them. Um, and because the Americans and the Soviets had both got the same benefit from the Second World War, that both of them had captured key personnel from the Germans. So you had, you, you probably won that battle because you, you, you've got the ace, you've got Werner von Braun, who, you know, was the, without whom the Saturn V rocket and the Apollo moonshots would have been a lot less successful or would have taken a lot longer. He was, of all the people worth capturing, he was probably number one by, you know, there was daylight between him and the others. Um, but with regard to spying on the Soviets, the Americans tried a number of things. Obviously, they knew that there were Soviet nuclear tests going on. So they had to find out either by flying aircraft over the Soviet Union or some other means you know, using just standard spying. And one ingenious thing they tried was to use balloons. So Project Mogul, if you look at the story of it, actually was quite successful because 
the distance it covered from the first to the last experiment was really impressive. And it's all written up in, it's actually in um, UFO Crash at Roswell, The Making of a Modern Myth, because one of the three authors of that is a guy called Charles E. Moore, who was a significant scientist in 1997 when he wrote the book. But actually, as a graduate student, he'd worked on Project Mogul. And having read that book, it, it tells you more about neoprene balloons than a normal person would ever need to know. The Project Mogul, the idea of Project Mogul was quite simple. It was to use multiple balloons in some effective way to get so high in the atmosphere and then strap monitoring equipment underneath them so that you could overfly Russia, recover the balloons, and in overflying Russia, you could gather evidence, including the evidence of the amount of radiation in the air, and make useful guesses about exactly how far they'd got in their experiments. And Project Mogul was tried unsuccessfully on the eastern seaboard at the north. The flights from Flight 3 onwards, I think it was, were near Roswell, were near the Army Air Force Base. Now, there would be no need to know. It's, you're absolutely right. It's a really good place to experiment with things. There would be absolutely no need for the military personnel attached to the 509th Bomb Group to know. It's not most security in military and and you know, intelligence is not top down. So it's not the case that the guy at the top knows everything. It's compartmentalized, isn't it? So Jesse Marcel would have no need to know that there was a secret balloon project going on nearby. But the, the place that it was happening, which is out in the New Mexico desert, was perfect both for testing the, uh, the uh, for, for testing secret hardware, including stuff that had been captured from the Germans. It was the perfect place to base the only nuclear operating, operating squadron in an air force on Earth at the time, the 509th Bomb Group. And it was also, weather-wise, a perfect place to try the balloons out because uh, what had been a problem in the, on the eastern seaboard was the stronger winds. Project Mogul never actually went into service because you developed the U-2 spy plane and then the SR-71 Blackbird. So the the balloons were always going to be, technically speaking, a more chancy solution to the whole problem. But as Charles Ian Moore makes clear in, in, in the, the book about the UFO crash at Roswell, by the time Project Mogul finished, they'd gone from two balloons that crashed very quickly up in the northeast of the United States to some very successful flights in uh, the, the New Mexico desert. And the last Project Mogul, Mogul balloons that were recovered had got thousands of miles one of them was recovered in Norway and the other one was recovered in North Africa and off the top of my head I can't remember where it was I think it might have been Tunisia but they flew from the United States so the idea of getting these balloons that far and with regard to the the truck that ran through Roswell again I don't know I'll give you my best guess they used a flying saucer story as the first press release cover for what had actually been recovered on the ground at the, at the Brazil ranch, yeah? So it would be consistent to mock something up on a truck and make a fuss of driving it through Roswell, because that underlines the story, doesn't it? In other words, at that point, if what you're actually trying to cover up is a top secret balloon project, and the last thing on earth you want is any Russian spy within, you know, spitting distance of Roswell, the Army Air Force Base, to realize that the Americans are planning to overfly Russia and test and see what they can find out about Russia's nuclear experiments. Um, Neil, what do you know about Rendlesham Forest? That's one of your big ones in the UK. 
It is, yes. Yeah. So it's the best known British UFO case. If, if people in America are familiar with any British UFO story, it would be Rendlesham Forest. And um, we're in danger of repeating the conversation we've just had because it's often referred to in the British literature as Britain's Roswell. And that's probably a fair way of, of looking at it because the Rendlesham Forest case has a lot of parallels with Roswell. It, it occurred very, very close to a, an air base. Um, it involved American service personnel. They're the prime witnesses to some of this. Um, and there is absolutely no doubt that something was covered up. So the, the, it, it's all of those things. Very, very simply, well, it's not a simple story, but I'll, I'll try and make it simple. There's, there were two nights in the middle of the Christmas holidays in the middle of a forest in Suffolk, which is quite a rural part of, of England, near an American airbase where strange things occurred just off the airbase in the forest. One of them was the night of Christmas Day into Boxing Day, as we call it, which is the 26th of December. And then a couple of nights later, the same thing happened again. And the official line on the story is that strange lights were seen in the forest and the American service personnel that saw them reported them and a small detachment of American service personnel because there's an airbase, so this is Air Force personnel and we leased the airbase, so it, it's British land, but technically the base is leased to the Americans, so for legal purposes there are things that can go on on the base that aren't necessarily going to concern the British police, for example carrying firearms and stuff like that. So the American service personnel on the first night were, were, were dispatched to deal with it, at the same time as there was a huge Christmas party going on on the base, so that there was a skeleton staff were actually monitoring the base. And at this point, the stories vary, but things that we know for sure, there were reports from local British people in the area about strange lights in the forest. In fact, one guy in particular, a bloke called Vic Boast, whose house is closest to where this event took place, has been inter was interviewed as a witness. He's, he's long dead now. American service personnel were, were definitely dispatched into the forest on two successive nights and subsequent to that, in 1983, a memo written by Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holt, who was the deputy base commander, but who was the most senior military officer sent by the American Air Force into the forest, discussed the fact that strange lights were seen in the forest and he discussed something of what the Air Force personnel had done. And that's when it became a massive story in the UK because one of our best known newspapers at the time, the News of the World, got hold of it and it printed a story in October of 1983 and the headline on the front page was a UFO lands in Suffolk and that's official. And they said it was official because there was a declassified memo, the so-called Holt memo in the middle of it. There are various eyewitnesses who have written books who claim various things, so a bit like Roswell, <clears throat> There are now three, well, there are, there are multiple landing sites. Unlike Roswell, these landing sites are very close together. So one of the landing sites is very close to the airbase, the east gate of the airbase, very close to, well within the forest. Another of the claimed landing sites, and this one you can go and visit because there's now a forest trail that you can walk for tourists to walk around, um, is right on the edge of the forest. And um, the UFO trail has a 
if you walk around the forest, the UFO trail has a big circle cut in the trees, which is apparently where the UFO landed. And you know, so you can go, you, you can visit the landing site, which is claimed in some of the books. Another book written by um, co-written by a guy called Larry Warren, who was one of the Air, the American Air Force personnel at the time, puts the landing site in a field just outside the forest. So a field that's visible from nearby a nearby farm. But I mean, this is rural. There's not many people live there. Um, and that's pretty much how it's gone. There, there have been, like Roswell, there have been claims and counterclaims among the eyewitnesses. Some of the eyewitnesses are quite happy to turn up on a number of TV. You know, so they've, they've met the obvious people. They're, they've met UFO hunters. Um, there was a, a British pop star who doesn't mean much in America, a guy called Sean Ryder, who's actually worth a Google. <laughs> Sean Ryder is an exceptionally uh, strange individual, but he's he's very entertaining. And he had a UFO sighting, and he did a, a series of television programs in the UK called Sean Ryder on UFOs, and he met some of the, the eyewitnesses to the Rendlesham Forest case. Um, there are... The sceptical take on it is that... It was a combination of overexcited military personnel who mistook the nearby lighthouse, which has since fallen down but was in operation then. Um, and so a lot of the strange lights were their misunderstanding of that and winding each other up. Um, last year, a book came out written by a guy called Nick Redfern, which actually does tie up all the loose ends because he's got a totally different story to tell based on interviewing people who are apparently involved. And he says that what happened was that the American Air Force deliberately experimented with psych with psychological, well, basically like psychedelic drugs on its own personnel. It just used a few unwitting dupes at the time just to see how they'd react to this. Yeah, that doesn't well, surprise me. <laughs> yeah, what what year well, was it? 1980. This is this is this is both of, both of the nights were right at the end of 1980. So the first of the two nights was. Christmas Day into the early hours of the following morning and then like I say it was a couple of days later it, there was more involvement um, so that's where it is and I mean clearly you have what you had at Roswell you've got eyewitnesses including military personnel claiming to, to have seen something that they can't explain telling very vivid stories about craft moving through the trees and military personnel interacting with aliens and whatever they don't all agree with each other, but there is circumstantial evidence on the ground, i.e. I hear, I hear, I hear. Like Roswell, what we have here also is some eyewitness testimony from civilians, which makes it clear that something strange happened. The, the strange lights in the forest on the first night were reported by the handful of people who lived in the local area, including the guy I mentioned, Vic Boast, who was a, a local farmer. And that res that meant that the British police, i.e. the civilian police, were called out to investigate the lights in the forest. So there's no doubt that something happened. I've had I've had a, an opinion about this for years. And it's, it, I'm a real hypocrite on this because normally I would go with the evidence that you can prove. And I can't prove what I'm going to tell you, but my, my take on it is it has been... A, I'm not sure that any of the stories that have come out are literally true, but if you boil it down, the things you can't avoid are the civilians reporting the strange lights on the first night. That definitely happened, i.e. people who lived in the area didn't expect to see lights in the forest and they reported them, and the police would investigate because the most likely thing going on would have been poachers, right? 
and, and I think it's right. a bit like Roswell or the Washington overflights. I think it's um, I think it's really strange that this happens when and where it does. So you know, in the case, it, it's an unusual thing that that this UFO case happens right next to a massive American air base. Actually, the most there are two air bases side by side in this forest. So it's a huge concentration of American military personnel, and it, I think it's a bit more than a coincidence that this is the middle of the night in the middle of the Christmas holidays, the very time when even the American Air Force's personnel would be stood down to the bare minimum of keeping the base safe. I mean, my own hunch is that there was probably some kind of covert operation went on, and probably something very simple. Not long after that, we had cruise missiles based in Britain on American air bases, and it was hugely controversial. Uh, the whole point of these cruise missiles was they were on mobile launchers, they were there to ensure that if the Russians attacked NATO countries in Europe with missiles, we could fire back, i.e. from Britain we could fire back. They, in Britain they were far enough away from Russia that we'd know there was an incoming strike. They were on mobile launches which could go to any one of a number of destinations and these would be randomly chosen on any given day. So if the Russians were stupid enough to attack Britain with nuclear missiles, the point of these cruise missiles was to get them out on the launches to take them to places the Russians couldn't possibly know where they would be. So there would be a guaranteed retaliatory strike, a mutually assured destruction. You know, So that was the military sense of them. But they were hugely controversial to the point where the only two bases where they were actually based was Upper Hayford and Greenham Common in, in Britain. And both of those bases had what they called a peace camp outside. There were women, entirely women, who stayed outside the bases. And their job, they, were, they wanted these missiles sent back to America. They didn't want them on British soil. Now... I just wonder if they'd got a mobile launcher, one of the early generation mobile launchers, on the base in Suffolk in the middle of the Christmas holidays in the middle of the night in 1980, and whether they did something quite simple like just drove it into the forest, just just to, I mean literally just just to do a practice run on driving one of these things out of the base, not even with a missile on it, and if it got bogged down in the forest. Actually, you can explain all the rest of it. You know, you'd, you'd have to send people out to retrieve it. It would have to be top secret. You'd need lights in the forest to see what you were doing. And, and I mean, I think that's a possibility as well. Okay, that, that's 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 probably chapter and verse on Rendlesham Forest, John. So your final take on Rendlesham Forest? Do you believe it was a covert operation set up by the Americans? I think that's a more plausible story than trying to reconcile the three contradictory landing sites and the differences in the eyewitness testimony from the American Air Force personnel. The official sceptical line, i.e. the most sceptical British investigators, actually think that you can explain it with the with the lighthouse. There's a guy called Ian Ridpath who wrote about this. and. He's got some interesting points to make because there's a tape recording of Charles Holt, the lieutenant colonel who was on the base, uh, doing a live commentary on the second night's investigation in the forest. And he talks about light being visible and not visible. And actually that coincides entirely with the beam of the lighthouse. And it's, it's, it's not so ridiculous. There was a forester called Vince Thurkettle who's an eyewitness of this. And he worked in Rendlesham Forest, and he was interviewed by British UFO investigators. And he told an interesting story that he knew this forest inside out. He lived in the area. He went running in the forest when he wasn't working in the forest. So he knew all the paths. And one 
evening, he ran down a path and a huge, great, bright light shone in his face and he threw himself to the ground because he thought he'd over, he thought he'd stumbled into a bunch of people poaching, i.e., you know, taking animals out of the forest where they shouldn't be. And poachers tend to use big lights sometimes. And he realized it was the lighthouse. And yet he was in that forest in his working life all the time you know dozens of hours a week he knew that lighthouse he'd seen it shining and he just even even he was briefly thrown by it so that's a possibility too but uh, like with Roswell John you know you can only you can look at these reports you can try to make sense of it genuinely don't we're going to take a break everyone for our for our sponsors and we'll be back right after the break And now back to our interview with Neil Nixon, UFOs. Neil, one of my favorite stories and one of the biggest stories out there is the Phoenix Lights. And uh, what made this big was that it was witnessed by thousands of people uh, for a period of hours. Uh, the basics on it are this. This occurred in 1997, in March. And lights began to be reported by thousands of people between 7.30 p.m. all the way through 10.30 p.m. in a space of about 300 miles. And that extended from the Nevada line through Phoenix to the edge of Tucson. And there were two different types of sightings that people were calling in about. They were calling the newspaper. They were calling the police. They were calling everybody they could call. And, of course, the government said, now we don't have anything in the air. Until a certain point, about midway through, when the second type of sighting occurred, and apparently the Air Force had set up, had sent up uh, warthogs to do some uh, tests with uh, basically flares that hung from parachutes. This is really strange because the first sightings, and I've listened to the videos and really dived into this story. I've listened to a video of a family who watched this huge craft, which they said was blocks wide from wingtip to wingtip, and it looked like a carpenter's square. And all the people who reported it and all the oral testimony and even some of the sketches that were drawn pretty much were the same, like a carpenter square with a larger light at the point. And, the, and it was moving in the direction of the point on the square. And then a light midway down each one of the arms, one light in the middle and then one light at the end. So a total of five lights of different intensity, glowing orange or white just depending on the light and the color kind of changing and flying low and slow and making to most of the testimonies making no noise and I, I remember one uh, video I heard testimony of a family they were standing out in their driveway they were returning home they stood in the driveway and this thing's flying over them so low you could have hit him with a BB gun and extremely slow and it was like no craft that existed at that time, or now, that we have. It was absolutely huge, it was flying without any noise, and it was just insolently gliding over populated areas. Uh, it came in between a gap on the mountain, on Phoenix. There were thousands of people who saw it from buildings, from their cars, outside, from their homes, who happened to be out, and made the news. Even Governor Fife Symington saw it. Uh, and then a couple hours later, the, the, the Air Force sends up a warthog and they start dropping flares that you could say are fairly similar to what they saw uh, on these, the lights on the bottom of this craft. I mean, it was, 
it really looked like a play by the Air Force to say, well, you know what it was. It was simply we were doing some tests with our warthogs. We were dropping some flares, and that's what everybody saw, so let's just forget about it. And the maddening thing was that despite all these reports, Symington held a press conference. Governor Symington, he was an ex-Air Force guy, and he held a press conference, and he brings out his aide dressed in tinfoil. <laughs> now, he had seen it, okay? But I think it, it was a perfect lesson on how people in government are. <laughs> Nobody as a governor or holding a high office that he's elected to then or even now is going to admit that they saw something that they couldn't explain flying in the air over their city or their country or their town. So he has to bring out an aide all wrapped up in tinfoil and just kind of make light of the whole situation. And long after he retired from his position, he admitted, yeah, I saw something, and no, I can't explain what it was to this day. That, folks, is the Phoenix Lights, and that occurred in 1997. There was some kind of slow-moving craft that moved over that area that was spotted by thousands of people and reported by thousands of people. And a, a typical case of government cover-up, we don't know if it was an alien craft or maybe an But if it was an experimental craft, why are we flying it over populated areas, over Phoenix and Tucson, at a couple hundred feet in height? I mean, just doesn't make sense at all. Can you make any sense of it? No. It, it, it doesn't. I mean, the, the, there are one or two cases. I'll bow to your greater knowledge of the Phoenix Lights. I know from all the skeptical views of this. So people like Brian Dunning have... The, the Skeptoid podcast more or less says the Phoenix Lights are misperceptions of quite a complicated exercise dropping flares yeah, from your Warthog aircraft. And and th that explains some of what's on the videos and some of what's seen. It doesn't begin to explain, as you said, a huge craft moving over the, over the Phoenix area. By the way, as it moved, it blocked out the stars that were no, visible. No, absolutely not. And and no so, parachute, uh, no no parachute dropped flares are going to do yeah. that. So, th this is probably a good time to say a couple of things. First of all, when I do podcasts like this and when we talk, I, I tend to take a skeptical line because my my view of it is, if you rule out all the things that might cause these reports and you're still left with reports that you can't explain, those will be the most exciting reports. I mean, as in. That there are one or two that are just so perplexing that you can try and explain them away with a skeptical view, but even then, what you're left with is something that's so unusual that it's a skeptical argument isn't that convincing. Um, I mean, I'd throw a few random things into this, John, about the Phoenix Lights, and I'm not saying that this explains the Phoenix Lights completely, but there are one or two things that, if, if your listeners are just getting familiar with this subject, it's probably useful to be aware of. Anybody who's been investigating UFOs for any amount of time will tell you that you often get reports where people describe a craft or they, they definitely see something that they describe in detail and then somebody else goes and investigates it and they explain it away very quickly. And one of the reasons for that is that it's when you're looking at a light in the sky with nothing between you and the light, it's actually very difficult to come up with an accurate estimate of distance. 
I was talking on a podcast last week, the Outer Limits podcast, which is a British one, and one of the best-known British investigators, Philip Mantle, um, told me a story about a farmer in Yorkshire, that in, in Britain, who regularly was seeing UFOs. Um, and, um, you know, he, he was coming up with very detailed reports of what he was saying. There's absolutely no... When, when, when Philip went to investigate, as with most of these things, you could explain it by sightings of satellites moving or, in one case, a planet Jupiter, yeah? Um, and it, he only had to... Um, like, you know, work out where Jupiter was in the sky and what time it rose and set to make sense of that. Now, a few curveballs in the Phoenix lights, as, I'm, as far as I'm aware, there's nobody who sees the lights who also describes seeing the military flares dropped at the same time. Yeah, which, which, which is often a giveaway. There's a, there's a famous case in the UK, the Cosford UFO case, where um, there are eyewitnesses who claim to have seen structured craft moving near a place called Cosford and whatever. It coincides with two things. So it's an unusual case. It coincides with meteor, like a fireball that was seen by astronomers. So it, it, that was definitely there. And a subsequent report where the craft is still in the area is completely consistent with a police helicopter that was chasing a stolen car. Um, now it's interesting that it's easy to debunk that case because the truth of the matter is there isn't a single witness who sees the police helicopter and the UFO at the same time. So a, a reasonable guess would be that <laughs> the light that's reported later on after the fireball is the police helicopter. And just to do with the wind and the distance, it's, you can't hear the helicopter, but you can see, and they have very bright lights. So, you know, they're, they're unusual if you see them at a distance. And if you're not expecting to see one and you can't hear the helicopter engine, you know, you, you, the, your mind will do the rest. I don't know. I, I would, with a lot of these, I would love to be wrong. Um, there are definitely UFO reports caused by experimental aircraft that were tested and prototypes were tested that never went into service. That's definitely right. happened. Yeah. So yeah, there I are. Agree. Yeah, I agree with you, and that may be what it was. Except why fly it right over? Why fly it low over question. Phoenix? There, there might. Man, that's. We're going to keep this a secret. I'll tell you what. Let's you, fly it over Phoenix. If it, it just was malfunctioning and you had to get it somewhere to get it, it that's a possibility. Mm -hmm. There's a you know, there's a famous case in the UK, the Calvine incident in 1990. A couple of hikers were out in the middle of nowhere in Scotland. They saw a really strange craft in the air. There is clearly a cover-up because they took photographs that went to a Scottish newspaper. This is 1990, so there weren't massive digital, you know, these days you'd send it to all your friends and there'd be thousands of digital copies in existence before anybody confiscated it. Mm. But but back then, it, right. this is negatives and photographs on film. And, and it went to the Scottish to a Scottish newspaper, at which point the Ministry of Defence basically called in the pictures from the Scottish newspaper. And those pictures are classified until 2072. Um, and whatever this this object was, these hikers saw a military aircraft come into the same area very quickly. Um, I mean, my best guess is an experimental craft, but it's interesting that they've, they've the pictures are classified for that long. It's one of the few cases that we know for a fact in the UK is classified. And again, you know, you, there's nowhere in the UK that remote, even if you're flying it over hills in Scotland, 
the chances that somebody's going to see it are fairly good. So if it's that secret, why did he put it there in the first place? You know, it, but but that happened. You can't. Yeah. I mean, that's a well-known case, and it's you know, the, you, there's no argument about it happened. The, you know, the journalists involved will confirm that the Ministry of Defence confiscated the pictures. But yeah. I see in your notes the Maureen Putty case, 1973. I've never heard of that one. I'm interested in hearing what you've got. Okay, right. Well, so w when I was picking a top 10, I've got to be honest, when I, if I'm thinking about top 10 UFO cases, I'm thinking about trying to come up with a top 10 where there are things in there that are different to a lot of cases that people would talk about that teach you a bit about ufology. Um, we, we missed the Hestel and Lights. Let me do these two together because in both cases, the reason I would pick them is that they're very, very uncanny. They're not like other cases very much, but they're definitely cases that teach us a lot. The Hestel and Lights, which I mentioned earlier on, you, your listeners can Google this. It's a valley in Norway. There are strange lights that are seen in the valley. It's one of the few places on Earth where people have gone to investigate UFOs, very confident that they would see UFOs. There's absolutely no doubt these weird lights are there in the valley. There's no question about them being extraterrestrial. They've done odd things like show up on radar when they weren't visible to the naked eye, um, react when lasers were fired at them. And this is a really remote place. I once I spoke to one of the investigators once at a UFO conference, a guy called Odd Gunnar Rood. Um, and, <laughs> I mean, this whole investigation was done on a shoestring. And I remember, so in the middle of winter in Norway, this is... Which, this is Alaska, you know, it's that kind of thing, yeah? And they had an investigator's caravan, but they didn't have that much power to it. So they used to have to make very difficult decisions like turning on the radar by unplugging a heater. And I once said to him, well, was it cold? <laughs> and he said to me, oh, just don't ask. They, they, <laughs> they were very dedicated. Now, point about that, and it's worth a Google, there are definitely, that proves beyond all doubt that there are weird earth lights that dart about the atmosphere, behave the way that some UFOs do, and that is worth knowing, because nobody suggests that they're extraterrestrial. The Maureen Puddy case is similar. It's an alien abduction without anybody being abducted, right? Um, Maureen Puddy had had UFO sightings She'd reported these. This is in the early 70s in, in Australia. She agreed, after a few of these sightings had been reported, she agreed to meet two UFO investigators, Judith McGee and Paul Norman. And they both drove, because they lived a long way apart, they both drove to like a place in the middle, quite a remote area where they could pull off the road and, and talk to each other. And keeping it really simple, when they met in, I think it was 1973, Maureen Puddy was sitting in the front of the car. The UFO investigators were in the back. She described a craft landing and seeing a spaceman, like a, an alien. The two UFO investigators saw nothing. One of them got out of the car to deal with the alien, although he couldn't see anything. And he walked right around the car. And he said, well, I've, just come, I've gone right around the car. I didn't collide with anybody. And Maureen Puddy said to him, yeah, but didn't you see the alien step back when you walked past him? <laughs> um, now it's an intriguing it's an intriguing case and the point I'm making and I've met loads of people like you know I know I'm skeptical but you, you get to a UFO conference I cannot deny the sincerity of witnesses and I cannot deny that I've met loads of people who've told me incredible stories and if I rigged them up to a polygraph put a stack of Bibles in front of them or whatever and said are you really telling me the truth they would say yes and any evidence that you could gather that they're telling the truth would would indicate that that's what they believe Maureen Puddy is one of those it's a very strange case I mean either 
there's some interdimensionality or it's in her own mind yeah and there's quite a few of those mm -hmm. that yeah. that if if you were going to google it that's one of the you know that's one of the best known ones but i mean there are people who claim abductions all the time i was look i was shopping a week ago in a second hand bookshop buying ufo books at the back of this shop which has got some weird wonderful ufo books in it i ran into somebody there uh, and we got talking about the books and within two minutes she told me she was an abductee and I have no reason to disbelieve her. She was not. She didn't say it to impress me. She didn't say it. She said it in a very matter-of-fact way. She was in the bookshop trying to make sense of what was happening in her life. I have no idea, and I don't know what happened to Maureen Puddy. My money would be on something going on in Maureen Puddy's mind, but who knows? Yeah, our most famous abduction case, and possibly the most famous one yet in the in the world was the Betty and Barney Hill case, which happened here in the U.S. Uh, in New Hampshire, and this was uh, this is quite a story. Uh, they were driving; they were on a trip back to their home in New Hampshire through the hills in Vermont. They were in the middle of nowhere, uh, and they were driving at night. This was uh, September nineteenth, the evening of 1961, and this one was really the first publicized report of alien abduction in the U.S. It came to be known as the Betty and Barney Hill abduction, or just the Hill abduction, if you're looking it up. And it, it was fascinating because they kept spotting something as this road is twisting through the mountains. They kept spotting this uh, moving light, which they understood to be a craft, and they were studying it as one drives and the other's looking through the window. And every time they, the car would turn and they would hit this notch where they could see it, this thing seemed to be following them. And it, as they began to watch it, they began, began to realize that this wasn't a helicopter or a plane. It was a very unusual looking craft. And what happened was she thought it was a falling star, uh, only it, it was falling and then it would move back upward. And it was moving erratically and growing bigger and brighter. And then they realized it was coming closer to them, like it had focused in on them. They're a mixed couple. Not that that means anything, except for one thing, except for skeptics say, you know, this is a couple who were, they were, they were middle class, uh, nicely dressed, an older couple in their, in their 30s and 40s. They had a little pet dog with them. Uh, they're a very conservative couple. Both worked. They were looking forward to getting back to New Hampshire to their jobs. And they were a mixed race couple, she being white, he being black. And these were conservative people, not the kind of people who would want press. Because back at that time, especially, the press, there were certain elements of the press that wouldn't be kind to two people of mixed race, married, coming up with a story like that. So it was an unusual situation and a much more believable situation because of that uh, to a lot of the, a lot of the people who, uh, who followed this. She finally urged her husband to stop the car for a closer look and to walk their dog. She had binoculars in the car. She grabbed the binoculars. She observed an odd-shaped craft flashing multicolored lights, and she saw it traveling across the face of the moon. So she saw it very clearly that it wasn't a helicopter. It wasn't a plane. It didn't have wings, okay? And that kind of scared them. <laughs> then he grabbed the binoculars and saw the same thing. They got a little, they got a little scared because this thing was kind of closing in on them. So he kind of ran to the car, and so did she. They both got in the car with the dog, and they continued driving. The road was isolated. There weren't any other vehicles. This was late at night. 
They were going through a place, a tourist area that we know now as Franconia Notch, and the object came closer to them. She said it was about one and a half times the length of a granite cliff profile, which they went back to and looked at and took photographs of. So it would have been about 40 feet long, and it seemed to be rotating. And they gave accurate descriptions of this thing. Then it started to descend toward their vehicle, and they felt, they felt like a magnetic uh, pulse being uh, hooked onto their trunk, and then their car went dead. And that's the last thing they remembered. The next thing they knew, they were driving in their car early morning hours back toward New Hampshire. And only thing, one thing was when they got home, they realized that somewhere in there they'd lost two or three hours. Uh, and slowly it came out, little things that they would notice when they got home and they started to get their lives together and their heads together, they couldn't recall the time, the drive, from the time they saw that craft landing near them, but which it finally did, and the time they got, and from the, from the time that they started driving again, neither could recall any of the incidents. But she noticed that her dress was torn. He noticed that his shoes, which he always kept highly polished, were scuffed, as if he'd been dragged. Tried to keep this all inside. They didn't report it to anybody. They just, they didn't want the press and they weren't sure what happened to them. But they did at one point ask for hypnosis. Their stories came out of that they had been taken into the craft, that they had been medically tested and looked at, and that even on the wall she saw a chart that they connected with them telepathically. Uh, nobody said any words, it was all telepathic. There were a number of, of crewmen in this craft. They did not look like humans. She identified, not because she could read anything on the wall, but she identified the star patterns because there were maps on the wall inside the room that she was in that showed the different star patterns. And she identified one as Zeta Reticuli. And that became famous, uh, especially in the years after that, when other people, people said they'd been abducted. A couple of them came up with the same story of Zeta Reticuli. And that, uh, that became a, a kind of a buzzword in the, in the, UFO, in the UFO story trade. But they, they, they gave details on the craft, they gave details on the people in it, they gave details on the test that they had gone through. They had no proof, however, when they got home, they had nothing other than, even the marks on the car hood could have been anything, but they were two identical marks, maybe two feet apart, where they're round suction cups style of marks on the top of their car hood, but that could have been anything. They did call Pease Air Force Base and they reported the encounter, but she withheld some of the details to them and just reported the encounter that they had seen a craft, not that they'd been picked up or abducted. That came out under hypnosis. It was really the dreams. She started having dreams and he started, he was denying it. And she started having dreams about the encounter and they were very vivid and they continued for five nights in a row. And they were very detailed and intense. She didn't mention, she mentioned them to Barney once and he was sympathetic but he didn't recall anything and pretty much told her to try and forget it or drop it. So she, she didn't mention it to him again. By November, she started to write down the details of her dreams because they were very sharp in her consciousness. And in her dream, she and Barney had encountered a roadblock and, the, and men who had surrounded their car. She lost consciousness. And then she goes into the whole story of how she was taken into the ship along with her husband who was dragged in, uh, his feet dragging, his shoes dragging on the, uh, on the dirt. Because of the, because of the hypnotism uh, and the therapy that they'd gone through, which was quite long and quite deep, Barney came out too and admitted what had happened to him. 
and it was years later when some, when they finally agreed to to uh, let somebody write the story about them, but they were very reticent to do so. Uh, but there's a lot of people today who believe that something did happen to them, that it wasn't just a mass hypnosis. If your listeners want to read up on that, the um, I'm sure you can still get the book. The the, the book that, that was written up is um, uh, John G. Fuller, The Interrupted Journey, isn't it? That's that's the, that's the book about it. And there's a there was a movie made in 1975 in which James Earl Jones plays um, Barney Hill, uh, and I can't remember who plays Betty. Is it? Um, oh, anyway. I, sorry if you could hear me shuffling papers while you were talking there, John. I was no, I was try, I, I was looking for something because I'd made a note about the the Barney Hill Betty and Barney Hill case and. Um, I was looking for a couple of names that I was going to chuck into the conversation because the, if your listeners wanted to Google these, certainly Dr. Benjamin Simon was the guy that um, hypnotized them and he went public in saying that basically he thought that they were telling a sincere story but he didn't believe that what they were recounting under hypnosis was what had really happened. He, he went public about that. Mm -hmm. And if I recall correctly, while Betty Hill described the star map, there are th something like 30 odd stars on the star map. Um, and I can't find the notes I made about this, but the what happened subsequent to that after the interrupted journey came out was that a school teacher whose first name I can't remember, but I'm pretty sure she her second name was Miller. She did some of her own analytical stuff on the star map and took the, the, the central stars from the star map. And she is the person who identified Zeta Reticuli and the surrounding stars, yeah? And it's, it's, it's a hugely important case for the history of ufology because it's from that moment that the grey aliens gradually begin to emerge. I mean, if, if you think about why grey aliens have become the kind of ubiquitous alien, it starts with Betty and Barney Hill, um, and then the grey aliens become massively uh, the dominant aliens that we see. But again, that, you can date that to around 1978, and specifically to the closing sequence of... Um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, when you see them. The appearance of the Greys in Close Encounters of the Third Kind is no accident, because Steven Spielberg was well aware of most of the great UFO stories and the Betty and Barney Hill case. I mean, obviously the TV movie that um, concerns that case is only three years older than Close Encounters. Um, I mean, I, I could... I, I, like, like with all of these, I don't know. I would just throw in a few bits and pieces that... I'm aware of that people have used to, to explain it over the years. So the truly sceptical case on this, which is worth mentioning, it, again, Skeptoid and one or two other places have mentioned it, that what they saw was an aerial tramway, quite unusual. A few things which are central to the case that people find convincing might be worth expanding a little bit. So the whole thing about the missing time, if I recall it rightly, she was a social worker and he was a postal worker, and they were very hard working, and also they gave up a lot of time to civil rights activism. Obviously, it's a mixed-race couple. This right. was something that was very personal to them. And so they yes. they didn't, for all that they'd got professional jobs and they were quite well-respected, they didn't have a lot of spare money because they gave up time to civil rights work at the cost of 
it cost them money and it cost them time when they could be earning money. So they couldn't afford a motel. So one thing I think that's pertinent to this case is if you look at the journey they made, they actually drove for 21 hours. If he'd been a lorry driver, that's arrestable, yeah? Um, right? <laughs> so there may be something in the tiredness. In fact, this, is, this whole thing is discussed in some detail in a book called Bad UFOs by Robert Schaefer. And he discusses just how tired and confused they might be. And he also takes one other part of the evidence that's sometimes quoted to task. Um, it's widely. Yeah, he was a, he was a sleep deprivation guy. He, yeah, he, he believed that. Uh, they yeah, but he also attacks the radar evidence because it's in some books it's it's quite rightly claimed that there was a radar UFO sighted at the same time as the hills, and it's absolutely true that did happen, but. What people don't say is that there were a number of radar systems in operation in that area and only one radar on one airfield spotted it. And it was a, a radar that was designed to track incoming aircraft. So he, what, he, what he picked up was actually quite low to the ground and may well have been a kind of radar angel caused by a swarm of insects or birds or something. But um, it's notable that the other radars didn't. And Robert Schaefer takes that to task. But there are two other things, I think, that are really pertinent to this case. First of all, um, Betty Hill lived a lot longer than Barney. She died in 2004. Barney died in 1969. So she was a long time on her own. And she was a figure of some controversy in the UFO movement because she had a habit of seeing UFOs anywhere and everywhere. And she believed this for a long, long time and had a very, was very imaginative and in fact there's, there's there is an argument that <coughs> prior to their hypnosis an episode of The Outer Limits the TV drama include, it, it, there's a photograph of, of an actor from that in Bad UFOs um, and the point is that there was an episode of The Outer Limits which included aliens and the actor in this series, which was done on a fairly low budget, looks quite a lot like a grey. It's blatantly, yeah, right? So um, Robert Schaefer certainly suggests that. One of the last public things that Betty Hill did to do with UFOs was that she attended a symposium. Uh, and there's a book written called Encounters at Indian Head, which is about this symposium. And it was funded, again, I can't, off the top of my head, I can't remember the guy's name. The guy that funded it was one of the first dot-com millionaires. Right, and he, and he gathered for encounters at Indian Head. He gathered a lot of leading UFO researchers together, and the point of it, the Indian Head Conference, the symposium, is that he was trying to get to the right. bottom of the Betty and Barney Hill abduction. So the various delegates are people who are experts. So yes. a guy called Peter Brooksmith went from the UK. A guy called Hilary Evans went from the UK, who was very interested in the kind of mystic New Age. UFOlogy and you know to do with link to fairy lore and everything like that. Uh, Ed Thomas, known as Eddie Bullard, went from the United States, who's a folklorist who didn't uh, wrote a like an academic work on how UFO abductions and folklore go together. And one of the attendees was Betty Hill, and it's not a pleasant read if you like if you want to read that story because. Well, thank you, Neil. We're about halfway through our top 10. Thank you very much for joining us today for Top 10 UFOs. It's been a great discussion, and I know our listeners are looking forward to, to the next one, and that should be arriving in about a week or two. 
So thanks, everybody, for joining us. Thanks for being with us here at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. And Neil, please tell them where they can find your books and how to get in touch with you. If you look at Neil Nixon, the easiest way to contact me, if you're American, so easier than ringing me, would just be to go to my website. <laughs> I've got neilnixon.com. Um, and you can message me through the site. And obviously, when my emails open up, the ones that have come from the site identify themselves and I tend to respond to them more readily than I respond to a few others. Thank you very much for being listening. To that.